listening to the podcast 82488. The princesses found themselves experiencing a freezing Scottish winter for the first time. Then, just a week before Christmas, they were told that they were going to be reunited with their parents at Sandringham. Overjoyed and laden with the Christmas presents which they had bought with their pocket money at an Aberdeen sixpenny store, including brooches, steamers, and the sheet music for Run Rabbit Run. And that was a selection from today's book, Queen of Our Times, by author Robert Hardman. It's only necessary to take a stroll around Windsor Castle below the Henry VIII Gate on Castle Hill. It is impossible to miss the imperial and imperious statue of Queen Victoria with orb and sceptre unveiled in her golden jubilee year. Less well Windsor's Golden Jubilee statue of Elizabeth II. Though unveiled in 2003, Philip Jackson's larger-than-life-size piece depicts her in the mid-1970s, astride an unspecified horse. The reason that few people see is because they need to take a side road deep into the park to spot where both the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, as ranger of the Great Park, decided to put it. Or else the visitor might wander across to the long walk and observe through the trees the imposing Italianate mausoleum which Victoria built for herself and Albert at Frogmore, not wishing to join the other monarchs in St. George's Chapel. She erected her own edifice of marble and granite. Elizabeth II, by contrast, has not commissioned anything at all for herself and Prince Philip. Rather, she long ago decided that she will spend eternity in a small corner of the Windsor vault, which does not even bear her name. The King George VI Chapel come the year after she wants to be alongside her parents. Why no stately marble sepulchre for herself? 
as she remarked on being told that a Scottish landowner had planted a wood in the shape of his own initials. How vulgar. Victoria was naturally assertive, even combative, forcefully promoting a favorite candidate for a bishopric of lecturing her prime minister on her strongest aversion for the so-called and most erroneous rights of women. Elizabeth II is different. She is not, by nature, an interventionist. However, she is anything but a soft touch. She one of his finest, chiefly remembered 
business. There are voices in royal circles privately wondering if the time has come for a modest innovation. One suggestion is to offer recipients a choice between joining the order of the British Empire or a parallel order of British excellence. The initials would be the same. M B E for a member. O B E for an officer and so on. But no government would go near the idea unless it was likely to secure the Queen's approval. So what would she say, given that she has been happy to get rid of the British Empire Medal under John Major's government, to bring it back under David Cameron, to give the Companions of Honor a spiritual home, Hampton Court, under Theresa May, and to create an entirely new honor in her own name, the Elizabeth Cross, under Gordon Brown. She is clearly not averse to amending the honors system. Those in favor of a twin-tracked order of British Empire and excellence argue that since a change is inevitable one day, why wait until it is forced upon the monarchy in anger? One ex-aide suggests that it would not find favor. However, the Queen has managed it, the order of the British Empire, very properly. I think this would fall into the change of reign bracket. I'd be surprised if it got anything other than an eyebrow. In other words, leave it to King Charles, none of which will make much difference to the fortunes of the Commonwealth itself. Former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard, now Chair of King's College's Global Institute for Women's Leadership, believes that relevance not empire legacy is key to the Commonwealth's future. There is a useful role for a large multilateral body that doesn't have in the room the dominant powers. The end. Queen of our times. Robert Hardiman. Eight, two, four, the word eight.